Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Effective Teaching Podcast. My name is Dan Jackson and today we are looking at Embedded Formative Assessment, a book by Dylan William. It is a fantastic book. He's definitely the guru when it comes to formative assessment. So today we're going to run through that book and I'm going to tell you what you will learn as you listen, well, as you were, if you were to read this book, what you would learn. And so I'm going to run through the chapters and give you a brief summary of each chapter. And hopefully you'll come away with some information that you can apply into your classroom. And also, if you'd like to get the book, you can head to teacherspd.net slash embedded formative assessment, all one word, and that will land you on the page. There'll be a link there. You can also grab the summaries, notes, or the transcript if you like. It's all there available for you. So make sure you head over there and have a look. So in chapter one, Dylan talks about why educational achievement matters. And so here basically he says that it increases the health and welfare of the student, of the society that that student lives in, and therefore it's very important. He also talks about how education teaches students how to actually develop skills. It doesn't just give them the skill, it teaches them how to learn new skills and how to learn new knowledge. And so it's kind of like what that point of this podcast is, is focusing on that whole lifelong learning process with it. Now, he then goes on to talk about how as teachers, we need to make sure that we are engaging our students in the learning really well. And he talks about how pedagogy trumps curriculum, basically saying that it's more important how you teach than what you teach. And so if you teach really well, uh, you're basically going to have a much greater impact on your students. In fact, research says it'll be about four times as great an impact uh, with quality teachers as it is with uh, our poorer teachers. Now, in chapter two, Dylan has the case for formative assessment, and he basically says assessment is the bridge between teaching and learning. It is what tells the teacher what the student has actually learned from what they've done in terms of teaching. Uh, And he says we need to be more focused on helping teachers to improve their processes with formative assessment and to become quality teachers, uh, because teaching is really a complex job. Uh, He actually says that it's impossible to master teaching in one lifetime. So that's how complex it is. You'll never go to work being bored, knowing what to expect, because anything can happen, right? You're dealing with people. And so he then talks about how it is the point of the teacher, it's their role to create the environment in which learning can best happen. And it's actually something that Sir Ken Robinson talked about in our last book club episode as well. Now, When it comes to how people learn, there's lots of good research out these days. And Dylan tells us to make sure that we're looking at cognitive science and not at neuroscience. He said cognitive science is the science about how we learn and neuroscience is just about how the brain works. So he says the way forward is to use assessment to inform teaching practice. And that's essentially what his whole book is about. And this means that assessment should be designed to support learning. Uh, We should be basing our teaching on success criteria and tracking the students' progress towards that as we watch their data coming back in our formative assessment. He states that assessment should have effective feedback. It should involve the students in their own learning, that we should make sure we're adjusting our teaching practices, and that we recognize the influence on students' motivation or the influence of students' motivation and their self-esteem in that learning and allow students to being able to assess themselves. He also identifies that we don't always have to actually give feedback to the student. 
He says that just getting the information and using it as a teacher to adjust our practice is actually the main point of it, not just to then give feedback to the kids. Not that you should avoid it, but you don't have to do that. He also says it's really important for us to plan for formative assessment by having you know, predetermined choices. So we know what's going to happen in the lesson. We create a formative assessment and then it determines what we then do for the rest of the lesson. And we're going to talk a little bit later about what he calls hinge questions, which are a really good way to do that. He also wants us to have really short cycles of assessment that is interpreted and then leads to action. Okay, so the shorter those cycles, the more effective our teaching is. The last thing he says is that there are five key strategies to embedding formative assessment. They are the learning intentions and success criteria, evidence of learning, they are feedback that moves learning forward, they are learning as instructional resources, so learners as instructional resources, and students becoming owners of their own learning. Those five key strategies, and they are the next five chapters of his book. And so chapter three is about clarifying, it's about sharing and understanding learning intentions and success criteria. So it's all about the learning intentions and success criteria, basically. And so he talks about how learning intentions can be really well developed if they're developed in collaboration with the students. And the way that you do that is basically by giving examples to the students of good answers and bad answers or good you know, end up uh, products, I guess, that might be created at the end of the learning. But you show them good and bad ones and you have them identify the strengths and weaknesses in the examples and you use that to then create the success criteria with your students and then the learning intentions and the success criteria then become more understood by the students and they can see where they're going with what they're doing. So learning intentions should be separated from the learning context as well so that we can allow for differentiation. So don't limit what students can do in terms of their application of the knowledge. You want to encourage them to transfer their knowledge. And so you want the learning intentions, those goals, to be without context. So don't make it so that students can understand how to create a periodization chart for you know, elite football. That's too limiting. Just have them learn how to create a periodization chart for a chosen sport. And that gives them their own context and things can then be transferred around. Now he also gives us a few really good tips here to make sure that we are thinking about this generally in what we're doing. And so the first thing that he tells us is to remember the, the these are just acronyms really. So WALT, which is uh, we are learning to. We then have WILF, which is what I'm looking for is. And so that's your learning intentions and success criteria. And the last one is TIB, which is this is because right, which is all about the why behind the learning. And I think those three phrases, so Walt, Wilf, and Tib, are really important for us as teachers to constantly be going to it so that when we're running each lesson, really, you could say, all right, what we are learning to do is, and then give them what you're learning, uh, what I'm looking for is this, and that tells me that you've you know, achieved that goal. And the reason we're doing this, this is because Right, it's an easy way to start every lesson to make sure that there's a focus to it. Our next chapter is all about eliciting evidence of learning. And so the most important factor for teaching is to know what your students actually know and can do. And so formative assessment is all about that. It's about getting the evidence and the data that your students are learning. You're finding out what they know, what they understand already. And then that allows you to teach better because then you're going to build upon that as you go forward 
in towards those learning intentions that you've already created. You wanna make sure that you're focusing too on the prerequisites when you're trying to find out what students already know. Find out what it is, you know, so for some things, I know for my subject, PDHPE, once you get to the HSC, it's really important that you already know things like the social justice principles, that you know um, the components of fitness, that you know the Ottawa Charter, you know the determinants of health. They all are very underpinning of what you learn during the HSC year. And so that would be something I would test or that I would check in you know, some kind of assessment before I then started teaching HSC to make sure that the students knew that stuff, they understood it, and I could build upon that. And there's a really great quote in this chapter as well that Dylan pulls out, and I'm gonna read it to you here. It says, grading can be seen as the punishment given to teachers for failing to find out that the students did not achieve the intended learning when the students were in front of them. So basically what he's saying is, yeah, grading what we're doing at the end, that marking is basically a punishment for us for not constantly checking that the students are achieving it when they're in the classroom already. So if we are doing good formative assessment, we should know where, this teach, where the student is and be developing them towards those learning intentions, making sure they're achieving the things in the rubrics so that they are successful in their learning and then marking becomes really easy because your students have achieved that. And if you're doing it anyway, you already know even before you assess the student at, that, at the end, you've got a very good idea of where they're gonna end up in that assessment. Dylan also will tell us that there's only two reasons for questioning in a classroom. One is to cause more thinking, and the other one is for formative assessment. So he gives a bunch of strategies here then to help increase the discussion in your classroom. And so he gives us uh, the pose a question, pause so that kids can think, pounce on someone, so that means don't let them raise their hand, just call their name, get them to provide the answer, and then bounce to another student, ask them what they think, or have them summarize, uh, or have them contribute something extra compared to what that student has just said. So everyone's listening, and everyone knows they can be called upon at any point in time. And he encourages us to really not let students raise their hand for things to answer our questions. You wanna call upon students, because it helps to create a supportive classroom and a more cohesive classroom. He'll also tell us that we should you know, be waiting four seconds after asking questions and three seconds after a student answers it. He wants us to ask lots of follow-up questions of students so that we're really focusing on what's actually happening in their brain as they're answering, and then get another student to summarize it. So lots of ways we're just basically asking questions, getting answers, drawing those answers out, and then getting another student to respond to that. Now, Remember, when you're listening to students' answers, you wanna be making sure you're focusing to find out what the student is actually thinking at this time. So you wanna ask questions like, why is blank, or why is not blank, an example of blah, blank, right? So you wanna be filling in questions like that, or why is blank and blank, not an example of. So you're giving students ideas which they are then explaining and so you're getting to see the actual process of what they're thinking. That's in this chapter two that Dylan introduces the hinge questions and these are basically one question that you ask in each lesson that is predetermined and you basically you use this question to determine what you're going to do for the rest of the lesson. If the students do well in it they're going ahead and doing a particular activity and if they struggle with it or get it wrong you're going to focus on a few other things before you move on to that. So you do one of these questions per lesson they take less than two minutes for the student to actually answer. They should take less than 30 seconds though for, the, for you as the teacher to analyze the responses. 
uh, it should be impossible for the students to get the right answer for the wrong reason. And incorrect answers should be interpretable. And so, and then what you do with that is you go and get other teachers to test it. But it's really important this bit, incorrect answers should be interpretable. And so, for example, a couple of, I'm going to use maths because it's a bit simpler here. If I do two times two as an exam question, that's a terrible exam question because if the student doesn't understand multiplication and does addition instead, they're going to get this right answer anyway. And I'm not going to know that. So instead, I should ask something like two times three. And two times three, I'll have one answer will be six, that would be correct. I'll then have another answer that is five because that's two plus three. I'll have another answer that might be one or minus one because I want to see if they're going to start minusing things instead. I might even find the answer if I divided it. Okay, if I do two divided by three, two thirds would be the answer to that. And so having those answers then allows, if a student gets it wrong, I know why. Whereas if they get it right, they've only gotten it right because they've done the correct process and that I know what they're thinking. And that is the important aspect of these types of hinge questions that he uses in classes. Well, chapter five is all about providing feedback that moves the learning forward. Basically, he says, constructive feedback is twice as effective as giving a grade. Feedback should always be task oriented and that the students need to, you need to make sure students have actually tried and gotten it wrong before you give them the feedback. Okay, if they get it right, they just keep going. But if they got it wrong, you have to wait till they get it wrong before you give them feedback. Don't see a kid student who's struggling and give them the answer. You wanna let them struggle, let them have a guess if it gets to that, and then help them and give them feedback. And your feedback then isn't giving them the answer still, it's giving them direction. So the key idea is to increase the mindfulness with which students engage in feedback. And feedback should be just enough to actually get the student going in the right direction, never giving them the answer, must take the student more time to action the feedback that it does for you to give it. Now, this focuses on what needs to be done in order to improve, okay? Feedback should be delayed so that it causes another learning event. It's kind of like putting in space repetition for what's happening in your learning. You're providing hints, not answers to the learning. And you're letting students know that by working, they're getting smarter, right? So you're building in that growth mindset approach where yeah, our intelligence is actually dynamic and the harder you work and the more practice you put in and you respond to feedback and all that kind of stuff, you can improve. It's much like training for sport. If I am doing soccer and I need to improve a particular skill, I'll practice it, get feedback, practice it, get feedback until I have mastered it. And the same thing for your uh, learning and for your intelligence. If you work hard in particular areas, you will improve in your intelligence in that area. Feedback should also always leave the thinking with the student, okay, that's part of that not giving them the answer. And to be effective, feedback must be future focused. It must provide a recipe for success. So you're giving them the next steps of what they should do. So maybe it's go and read this chapter, answer this question or summarize this point or go and watch this video and then do this activity, right? That will then show them that they're being successful and it should progress them towards the learning goals or the learning intentions. Okay, that should be getting them closer to achieving those learning goals. Now chapter six is all about activating the learners as the instructional resources for one another. So this is all about collaboration really. 
And he says that peer assessment should focus on improving assessment and not on the grades. So don't have them assess to see what the grade is, have them assess and then explain how they can improve it. Okay, students should provide feedback that is elaborative, you know, saying why, how can we do this? How can we actually get this better? Why does this not quite meet the rubric? Okay, and you're having your students provide that and elaborating on the answers that are already there. Now, cooperative learning needs to have motivation. So the, basically the interests of the group, right? They need to be working together and they need to be actually care and motivated to work for everyone to achieve. And so basically you need to make it so that one person will suffer if they all suffer or if one person suffers, they all suffer. Uh, and so you can do that even just simply by focusing on you know, the average of the group and you know, see what the average is to start with. And then as they learn, how much does that average increase? And that's what you're actually monitoring the group on, not monitoring them on who's got the highest or who's got, you're doing it as a whole group and looking at the average of the group. Now, now collaborative learning also needs co social cohesion. So the kids need to care about each other. Uh, you need personalization. So engaging with specific difficulties that happen in the group and making sure that each student kind of has a role, I guess, themselves. But don't let that role be the feedback role. You want to make sure no one knows that they're doing that until you ask them once they've done the work. And then you need to make sure that there's cognitive collaboration happening as well. They all need to have to think. It needs to be higher order, deep thinking for collaborative tasks, not really basic stuff because then one person will just do the work. Now, student-led groups learn more than teacher-led groups because of the lack of the power dynamic that exists. So students can actually become better instructors to other students than a teacher can be at particular times. Collaboration requires group goals as well and individual accountability. So you need the whole group to be working towards something, but each individual in that group has to pull their weight for the group to progress. That's why the average thing works really well. And they're more effective when the task is open-ended, where it requires deep critical thinking, when it requires input from all parties, and has multiple tasks that are related. And of course, you can also assign your roles, like I was saying, but don't assign the person who's gonna be giving you feedback or reporting to the class. Now, some strategies to help with collaboration. One is C3 before me, and I often will add tech to that. So see three people and then go and check the internet, and then come and see me. Uh, you can swap and grade each other's work. That's a great way for collaboration, particularly if they're elaborating on that. And then use checklists and partners. So have people actually create their work and then get a partner to go through a checklist. It could be the rubric and tick off that they've actually met everything in that rubric before they submit it to you. And if they haven't met everything, you go back to the person who did the checklist and say, hey, you've missed this. You didn't do it properly. Go and do it again and then give it back to the student. So you're actually passing the work back to the student who didn't do it who was meant to do it in the first place. All right, we're up to chapter seven, which is all about activating learners as owners of their own learning. It's probably my favorite chapter because it's all about essentially creating lifelong learners, right? So students can produce insights into their own learning to increase their learning. That's the kind of core aspect of this. Students should be able to look at their learning, assess it themselves, work out what they need to do to improve it and go and do that themselves without needing someone else. They can evaluate their learning against plans each week. They can evaluate it against the rubric. They can do all kinds of stuff. They can develop self-assessment skills. And if they do that, if they develop self-assessment skills, it can actually double the rate at which the student learns. So very important. So if you can spend some time developing that and helping them become better at that, you can double the rate at which students will learn things, which will save you a lot of time in class. So you can ask students to do things like elaborate on their learning. 
to explain their learning, linking new and old knowledge. Okay, to actually have them explain, I learned this, which connects to that, and you're then actually uh, tapping into how students learn by doing that. You can also interweave their practice by connecting with other topics and knowledge. So have them think about other subjects that they're doing at school and where else that can connect with things outside of your classroom as well. That's a great way to have them doing that kind of self-assessment and becoming more um, owners of their own learning. Now, if you're going to do practice testing, you can do that with distributed practice, which will then increase the learning because it forces retrieval and utilizes the whole space repetition thing. So there's space between each kind of testing, which forces it kind of it's a new learning process. They're having to recall it, which is what you really need to make sure you're practicing with your students is getting them to recall information because that will strengthen the newer pathways, help them become more confident in their answers and help them to more easily utilize that, that knowledge when they're trying to apply it in new contexts. And there's another quote in here that I really love and it's that the best person to mark a test is the person who just took it. So see if you can get away with that. <laughs> but next time you've got a test in class where you do a test, have the students mark it themselves Okay, and even if you make a copy of it, give it to them and have them mark it themselves before you mark it and you can actually see how they're going as you mark it as well. Metacognition is important for self-sufficient learners. Okay, it involves knowing what they know, what they can do, and what, that you, what they actually know about their own abilities as well. So if they know the whole growth mindset thing, they're more likely to put in the effort. If they already know what they know and know what they don't know or they generally don't know what they don't know, but if they know what they know and know what they can do, they can then look at what's next. Now, self-regulating learners are the most effective learners by far, right? I'll talk about doubling the rate at which they learn. Motivation, though, is really important. And motivation is actually a consequence of achievement. It does not cause achievement, but it does then lead into a cycle of you know, I was motivated, well, I achieved something which motivates me and then I achieved new things. And so it kind of, it spirals learning on, but it is not the cause of learning. Now, for motivation, goals must be specific. They must be within reach and offer a challenge if you're trying to increase the motivation in your students. And basically, anytime a student is making a choice in your classroom, they're going to choose between two pathways. One is the personal well-being and the other one is growth so there's this dual pathway happening so whenever you present some learning or a task to your students they might choose personal well-being which means they're going to go oh, I'm not really going to put in effort here I think I'm going to fail I don't want to embarrass myself or they see it as a chance for growth they go actually this looks achievable if I put a bit of effort in I can get to that this sounds great and then I won't I'll be able to look good in my class or whatever it feeds into their confidence so you can help this you can really help your students to do to choose the growth by asking things like well, not by asking but by saying things like this task is very difficult and it takes most people at least three attempts to get it right and automatically that means the student knows okay i can get it wrong three times without embarrassing myself and that's really important some other ways that you can help your students to choose growth uh, make sure that they have really clear goals Make sure that they believe in the fact that they can grow, right? That if they work hard, they're going to get smarter. Uh, make sure that comparison is difficult. If it's hard for students to compare each other against each other, then it gives that students uh, less risk, I guess, and so they don't have to protect themselves as much. 
Make sure feedback is provided with a recipe for success. You're giving them the steps that they need to do to, in order to get closer to that learning intention. And that learning is transferred to the students, actually getting them to do as much learning, as much of that work as possible, not giving them the answers. Now for some practical application here, some things you can do in your classroom to help with this. If you use learning portfolios to monitor progress in learning, that is a fantastic thing because you can easily talk to the students then as well and say, hey look, back here, you were successful, this is what you did and you learnt this and then this is what you did and you've learnt that. The students can see past results of them achieving things when they put in a bit of work and then go, okay, I'm more likely to achieve this if I put in a bit of work and they're more likely to choose growth over personal well-being. You can also use learning logs with a few prompts. So prompts such as I learnt or I was interested in or I might have gotten more from this section if and so you've really focusing on what they've done, things they're still curious about, and ways that they can improve their time that they spend on their learning. Well, that is all the chapters in Dylan Williams' book, the Embedded Formative Assessment book. It is a great book. I highly recommend that you get it. Uh, just to summarize the key points, number one, have learning intentions and success criteria for you know, any unit that you create, and you can even do it smaller into your lessons. You want to make sure you're obtaining evidence of learning that focuses on what they are thinking. Okay, uh, provide feedback that has a recipe for success to your students. Use collaborative tasks that focus on the group. And then finally, teach students to be self-sufficient learners. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the book club. I have loved doing this as I go through my notes from reading it previously and looking at the book again and writing these notes for you guys and then doing this recording, it just reminds me so much of what I've learned and how I've been applying it. So I hope that it really helps you. If it has, if you're enjoying these, please subscribe. And if you're really enjoying these book club episodes, please come over to teacherspd.net slash embedded formative assessment and tell me what books are your favorite books when it comes to education. Leave a comment in there and let me know. You can also grab the summary of the book that I've got on that page and the transcript from this episode. Uh, I would love to hear from you. And please make sure you come back and join us next time for our book club episode, where I'm going to be talking about what you will learn from the book Flip Your Classroom, which is by John Bergman. I hope to see you then.